This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to Forma, a new podcast featuring conversations with authors, teachers, creators, and community leaders that are carefully contemplating the nature and practice of classical education, aesthetic wonder, and Christian community. I'm David Kern. In an article called Ecce Homo, the classical refrain of the great Gatsby, Adam Andrews writes this. F. Scott Fitzgerald's classic 1925 novel endures its fair share of criticism from Christian parents and classical teachers. It's the poster child for 20th century debauchery and godlessness, a reputation it has earned. But a close reading of the novel reveals Fitzgerald working in a literary tradition that goes all the way back to ancient Rome. His masterpiece aims at some of the most cherished literary goals of the classical world, while drawing power from a much more contemporary setting. That's the introduction to Adam Andrews' article in the most recent issue of Forma, the Circe magazine, and the companion to this podcast. In that article, Adam, who's a good friend of ours, explores the profound ideas and important themes found in The Great Gatsby, and he discusses why Christians, uh, and Christian educators in particular, should read the book despite its uh, sometimes uh, secular reputation. Here in this episode of Forma, we're bringing you an interview when Adam and I got together to discuss that article and to discuss our mutual love of The Great Gatsby. Um, If you don't know Adam already, he is the director of the Center for Lit and a homeschooling father of six. He earned his BA from Hillsdale College and his MA from the University of Washington in Seattle, uh, which is Uh, where he lives. Well, sort of. He lives in Washington State, although not in Seattle. He's a Henry Salvatore Fellow of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute and a founding member of Westover Classical Academy in Colville, Washington. He has become a regular speaker at Cersei Conferences and will be giving a keynote next summer at our national conference in Charleston, South Carolina. And we are really excited to say that that he has become a good friend of good friend of ours here at Cersei. In fact, the uh, whole Center for Lit crew, which is essentially the Andrews crew, has become great friends of ours and so it's always a pleasure and it's always an honor to be able to sit down with Adam Andrews and talk literature. He is a great conversationalist and he understands literature through and through. So we think this is the perfect kind of conversation to to have on Forma. I began the conversation by asking Adam to explain a little bit about how he first encountered The Great Gatsby. And this is what he had to say. Oh, it was assigned to me in high school. So my first reading was as a high school English student. And uh, the thing probably went completely over my head. So this was probably like about the same time the book was taking place, right? <laughs> That's very funny. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I remember not uh, not really getting it. I remember thinking, um, 
I wasn't a very good reader as a high school kid. Hmm. Actually, hmm. I remember not even following the plot all of, all that well. What and, can, uh, can I ask you Tom about that? Tom Wilson ends up dead, and I thought, wait, what what happened there? So, <laughs> spoiler alert. Um, can <laughs> Can I ask you a question about that? You said you weren't a very good reader in high school. Um, what do you think your your flaw as a reader was then, or your limitations? Was it just that you weren't paying attention, and didn't didn't care? Well, that I'm sure uh, to the degree that uh, that high school kids can care about great literature, I was probably as as egregiously at fault as any. <laughs> but um, I, I tended to read too fast hmm. and tended to um, to try and scurry ahead to get to the end, either to find out what happened or to be done with the assignment for the day. And very yeah. seldom uh, went back and read something over again. And I've found in my reading career since hmm. that even as an adult, I don't really pick up on any nuances to speak of on a first reading. Yeah. And I, I think a, a second reading is really where I personally finally figure out what the story is about and what the author might be trying to say. Rarely yeah. do I get a sense of that of the first time through. And in high school, I don't think I ever read anything twice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, high school often is not really, it's not built for that. To, I think you're mo- probably right. Most of the time, it seems like school is built for getting through more things because you have to kind of cover the material or or just get as much knowledge into a student's head as you can, as opposed yeah, to I think that's right. teaching more depth. Yeah, I think if I were designing a high school curriculum, I would probably put fewer books on it in the literature department and mm-hmm. uh, require maybe uh, multiple readings of of some of these great books. That's a yeah. that's a good idea. So let's talk about the Great Gatsby within that context. Then, so if you if you're building a curriculum, uh, and you're thinking, okay, I'm not going to throw as many books in there as as like as I might want to. You know, you're a literature teacher and a literature lover, so you probably could come up with 200 books where you're like, oh, I wish my students could read all these. Yeah, but you have to be choosy. So where does the Great Gatsby fall into that for you? I mean, I know, I, even as a lover of the book, would you say that it, it definitely falls into a book that you would want your children or your students to read? And if so, around what age? Well, that's a good question. And I'm glad you put that caveat on because I would definitely include this book on a list for high school students, uh, despite what I just said about high school students and me as a high school <laughs> student being terrible readers in general. Yeah, uh, I think it's appropriate and even even a really good choice at the high school level. And this is because it represents a major uh, period in Western intellectual history, in American hmm. history, even more particularly. Hmm. And so uh, if, if we're going to approach literature as a as an artifact of history, the history of our culture, uh, the period that Gatsby really represents and embodies and speaks for is an important period. It's an important period to us who live in the 21st century uh, because it, it represents the 20th century mindset so beautifully that right. I think it's really important for, for giving young readers and young members of our culture an idea of where they've come from. Hmm. Hmm. But, you know, at the same time, as you, as, as you note in the article, it, it is a poster child for like, what did you, how do you put it? The 20th century debauchery and godlessness. <laughs> right. And you even note that it's kind of a reputation it has earned. So how do you, um, square those two kind of ideas? Like the idea that, y- that it represents a time period that, that we are, um, that, rep- that that we were born into, so to speak, that mm-hmm. our culture was born into and born or, you know, maybe born because of, yeah. um, and we want our kids to understand that. Um, 
but at the same time, we need to be careful about what we give them to consume. Um, and we have to be, again, I'll just use the word, the, the super literary word choosy. Um, Mm. so, so how do you kind of balance those two ideas, those two concerns? Now that's a really good question. I mean, I, I think that, um, that the, the moral debauchery that's depicted in the great Gatsby certainly makes it the product of a decadent age. I mean, uh, Fitzgerald wasn't creating any new kinds of debauchery. He was just describing what he saw. Right. Right. But, yeah. but I think there's a deeper significance to that, which is that it's not only, I think I mentioned this in the article as well. It's not only the product of a decadent age, it's also a commentary on that age. Mm-hmm. And it does a lot to explain where that decadence comes from. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's this wonderful image in the early part of the story as the, as the, the readers are taken through this place called the Valley of Ashes, which is this civilization where the poor that live in the, in the novel dwell. And there's this billboard looking over the Valley of Ashes that's tattered and worn. It's from an old, an older time. It's advertising an ophthalmologist named T.J. Eckelberg, and the the author describes this billboard as being um, uh, no longer relevant because Eckelberg has moved away, and mm-hmm. so it's not advertising his business anymore, but the huge eyes that represented his business are still gazing sightly out over the landscape. And when you see this scene, you get Fitzgerald saying, look, the reason this world is so decadent is that the overwatching providence that used to um, gaze upon us has moved away. Hmm. And astute readers can see when they put this symbol together with the debauchery and the, the, um, the loose living, the godlessness that characterized the novel, when they put those two things together, they can see Fitzgerald drawing a connection and essentially saying something very, very true about the 20th century and about really any age. When the overarching providence moves away what you get is trouble. Hmm. And it's not that Fitzgerald is saying, I don't believe in God, but he's saying our culture has removed hmm. him. Hmm. And his sightless eyes gaze out, gaze out over the landscape because we don't actually believe in him anymore. And this is what you get. Hmm. And so there's a, there's a cultural commentary, a philosophical commentary going on in Gatsby that, uh, that readers need to be aware of because they actually do come from a civilization where that happened in the early part of the 20th century. And that's important to know. So uh, when you're teaching a book like this, let's just, I mean, I don't know why I said a book like this when you're teaching this book. Um, (laughs) and, and these ideas are so prevalent, um, and so, so much a part of the kind of nature of the story itself and what makes it meaningful. How quickly do you try to tell your high school student? this like how, i mean i guess how how quickly do you start trying to draw their attention to that truth are you are you going to do that um sort of right away when you see that image or are you going to try to steer their conversation there like how do you get them to understand that without sort of just making it something they take down in their notes and never think about again does that does that yeah. make sense yeah that's a great question i love that question because as a as a lit teacher you're always trying to do two things you're trying to communicate the 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 essence and the truth and the value of The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald in mm-hmm. this moment that you have them in class. But yeah. also you're trying to prepare them for a lifetime of good reading. Yeah. And so you're trying to impart some techniques for understanding literature that are applicable not just to Gatsby, but to any other work of the 20th century or any other century. And so I would never want to give that um, 
I, I wouldn't want to give that treasure away in the first lesson yeah. before I tried to teach the students how to find it on their own. So, so yeah. in this example, probably we would discuss symbolism and we would say, well, you know, what is a symbol? How does an author actually create a symbol and what does he do with it? And what are the symbols in this story? And we would arrive at sort of a, uh, at, at, as it were, at the end of a treasure hunt looking for symbols by doing some sort of structural analysis of the story, looking at rising action and climax and how the climactic moment resolves the conflict and what the characters are after and why they can't get those things. And we we look at literature the way literature should be looked at broadly mm -hmm. and then say, in the case of Gatsby, what does this sort of analysis of the story lead us to conclude about the symbol and maybe have that lesson the, the the specific contribution of Gatsby to the great conversation come up at the end. So mm -hmm. then maybe by the end of that process, they have not only an understanding of Gatsby and its place in Western intellectual history, but also some tools for reading the next book effectively. Hmm. So you talk about the idea of making lifelong readers out of our students. Why do you think that... Um, so I taught... I taught juniors and seniors. I taught this book. Um, and maybe this says more about me as a teacher than anything, but it seems like we get, we're always going to run into students who just, how to put it. They're just, they're just not, they just don't love reading. Like there's just some mm -hmm. people that just don't love reading. Um, and I don't, I'm not, that's not meant to be a judgmental statement. Like how dare you not love reading? Sure. There's something sure. wrong with you and your soul is going to, you know, be flawed. I mean, maybe it is, right. but you know, I wouldn't say it publicly. Um, right. but how do you, as a literature teacher, approach a student who just, just doesn't love it. And I don't mean the student who's lazy because that's a different question. Um, like laziness is a, that's, that's, that's something else entirely than the student who hasn't uh, just doesn't have that appreciation or love for the activity and the experience right. of reading. Um, so, so let's talk about not, let's not talk about the lazy student. That's a different podcast, but let's talk about okay. the student who just hasn't learned to, who just hasn't acquired that love yet. And they may never do that. They, that just mm -hmm. may not be something that becomes a part of who they are. Yeah. How do you approach a student like that? Well, um, one of the things I think is really great about literature is not that it is something to read. It's not the act of reading that makes it so great. It's the telling of stories that makes it so great. And I think the, 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 the brotherhood of people that like stories is probably larger than the brotherhood of people that like to read stories. Hmm. And I think maybe the way I would go about it is say, look, the, the format that this particular story comes to us in happens to be written down so that it must be read. But the most important thing about it is it's a great story. Hmm. And I appeal to you as a member of that brotherhood of people that like stories to give this one a try. Oh, and by the way, here are some techniques that will help you read this story more effectively. And if you can master them, you're actually going to enjoy the process more. I find that a lot of the, of the um, uh, resistance against reading among students comes from a lack of knowledge of how to do it. I mean, it's, yeah. I, I've, I've actually said in, in another place recently that here's a rule that I don't think has any exceptions. Unless you've been taught to read literature properly, you don't know how. You don't actually come into the world knowing how to read literature. Hmm. It's a skill, just like doing algebra. Nobody is born knowing algebra. You have to learn it. Nobody is born knowing how to read the literature to participate in this particular art form. 
They have to be taught. And if we if we are taught, our enjoyment of the art form increases exponentially. Hmm. So I think maybe a kid who says, I don't like to read, obviously there will be some that don't like to read as well as others, even if they do know how. Yeah. But in a lot of cases, the student that says, I don't like to read may really be saying, I don't know how yet. Yeah. And if you teach me, I probably will enjoy it even more. Yeah. <clears throat> Growing up, I always hated math, but my dad would always tell me, you don't hate math. You just hate not knowing math. Yeah. I think there's a lot to that. Because when you don't, when you're forced to do something you don't know how to do, it's pretty much the most frustrating thing in the world, right? <laughs> yes, like, it is. Have you ever watched a four-year-old try to tie his shoes? <laughs> <laughs> that is not his favorite thing to do. <laughs> That's why God invented Velcro. Um, That's right. So one of the things you talk about in your article on The Great Gatsby, um, which is called Eke Homo, the classical refrain of The Great Gatsby, you talk about how... Fitzgerald is working in a literary tradition that goes all the way back to ancient Rome and that his masterpiece aims at some of the most cherished literary goals of the classical world while drawing power from a much more contemporary setting. That's your line from the piece. And towards the conclusion, you write that every age has its own voices for history never repeats itself. And yet each voice, whether Dante in the 14th century or Dickens in the 19th or Fitzgerald in the 20th, joins all his brothers past, present and future in the same conversation. Can you unpack that a little bit and explain how the great Gatsby in particular, uh, plays a role in that ongoing conversation uh, and, and how it's a tradition, you know, how it harkens back to a tradition that goes all the way back to ancient Rome. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks for asking. I mean, I think the, um, the little phrase that, uh, that you all pulled out as the title or as the, 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 um, the call out, what you call it. Yeah. The call out Eke Homo, that quote, uh, from the ancient language, behold the man. I mean, I think in that sense, um, Fitzgerald is doing exactly what, uh, what Homer was doing in, uh, in in the Iliad, what Virgil is doing in the Aeneid, basically saying, behold, here is human nature. Hmm. This is what a man looks like as he struggles through his life in this world. This is what it's like to be a man. This is how difficult it is to navigate the world of men. Here are the frailties and glories, the strengths and weaknesses of this thing called man. Hmm. That project, I think, is at the heart of art generally and literature in particular. I think that's what Homer is after in the Odyssey and the Iliad. I think that's what Virgil's after in the Aeneid. I think that's what the authors of all great literature are doing at one level or another. And they're doing it in a particular way that is that is appropriate to their own time and place, which is what gives us the wonderful variety of world literature. But the thing that ties those all those times and places all together is this common goal on the part of artists to say, here we are in a world of men. This is the kind of creature that we are. And this is the difficulty that we face in walking it out. And so one of the things that li that literary artists do, I think primarily is rather than attempt to teach us who we could be, by behaving correctly or adopting particular character traits or virtues, they start with describing us as we are. And so um, Achilles' bitterness and frailty in the Iliad isn't necessarily judged. It's just commented on. It's observed. Homer says, look at this. Behold, this is what we do. It's not just what Achilles does when he gets his feelings hurt and he goes and sulks on the beach. It's what we all do. 
when we get our play pretties taken away. Fitzgerald is the very same thing. What he's saying is, look at this man. He stands for all of us. This is what we do when we live in a world that where the ancient verities have been shaken, where there is no more God, where Eckelberger has moved away. This is what we do. This is how we respond. What do you think of that? And hmm. in that sense, Fitzgerald is doing exactly what Virgil did and exactly what Homer did. And, and, and he's also doing exactly what Cicero did when he rose up and said, oh, tempora, oh, mores, oh, the times, oh, the customs. Can you believe the debauchery of this age? Hmm. You know, he's, he's giving a, what I like to call a Ciceronian lament that goes all the way back to the ancient world. Hmm. You note that one of the, your, your word is startling themes is, and again, your word, a wistful longing for tradition. Um, that, and that, that, comes out in, in Nick Carraway. Um, is yeah. that, is that sort of speaking or is that sort of part of what you're speaking about here? That there's, you know, you, you, we all, when we look, when we, when we comment on our own time and we say, Oh, tempora, um, right. we are essentially right. saying that there is, you know, something, something better in the past that we, yeah, we that all do it sort of inherently saying that, um, I, I think we are. And so is that what this wistful longing for tradition that, that shows up in The Great Gatsby? Is that what you're talking about? Absolutely right. Uh, I think Nick Carraway is a great example of it. In the end of the story, he says, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving New York. I'm going to go back to the Midwest where you can count on things. People live in the same house for generations. And, and I'm going to go try and find some traditions that, that endure, that I can latch on to. And, and Fitzgerald is, is uh, cynical enough because of his own day and age to doubt whether Carraway is going to find what he's looking for when he goes back. That's why you get that great line at the end of the story. Uh, we, we beat on boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past, um, convinced hmm. over and over again that our only hope is to look backward to some golden age. But Fitzgerald's underlying cynicism says it's a valley of ashes it's, we're not going to find what we're looking for back there. And in a sense, I think he says something true, that a wistful longing into the past is a fantasy because we don't actually live in the past. And Cicero was guilty probably of the same fantasy when he said, oh, the debauchery of this day and age, I wish we could live in the days of the old republic. Yeah. And you know, in, in a sense, I think Fitzgerald is, is too realistic to give Carraway any real hope. It's a, it's a mirage of ashes. And, uh, that, I think that's a, that's one of the ideas in Gatsby that is really arresting, I think, to a, to a discerning reader. It makes me look into my own heart and say, I wonder the degree to which I'm looking back wistfully to an imaginary past rather than living wholeheartedly in my own day and age. Well, I guess, isn't that the human condition though? We all look back until the person looking back is looking back to the Garden of Eden. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. I um, I saw a movie uh, recently, a Woody Allen movie that I think illustrates this point really, really well. Midnight in Paris. I don't know if you've yeah, seen oh, it. Yeah, I've seen that a couple of times. Yeah, I love that movie. And it's this it's, it's, it's same idea. The, the, uh, the protagonist, through some magic, ends up in 1920s Paris, the, the land of his heroes, his literary heroes. And he gets to hang around with, with Hemingway and Fitzgerald and all, all those people. And, and he's so glad to be in his own past where things were good. And he notices as the movie goes on that they're all discontent, all of these heroes of the 1920s. 
And why? Turns out that they are not contented with their own age. They're looking back into their own past, into the Paris of the 1880s and 1890s, wishing they could go back there. Hmm. And Woody Allen kind of gently says, hey, uh, when we, whenever we do that, we're doing nothing more than engaging in a fantasy. That is something you should think about. I just think that movie makes that point really well. Okay, so let's um, let's think about this within the context of being classical educators then. Because on the one hand, that may be true that we can wistfully look back at something that we maybe are idolizing. And yet at the same time, we obviously say that this is the tradition in which we want our children to be educated and on which culture has been built. And therefore we need to know it well and we need to rely on it and we need that there's a lot of value in it. So where's the balance, yeah. where's the balance there as well between oh, it's looking back question. wistfully and idolizing it and uh, placing an appropriate amount of value in it and, and then relying on it as we educate. Yeah. And that's the trick, right? Placing an appropriate amount of value on what we've learned from our ancestors in terms of teaching techniques in terms of the content of a curriculum in terms of understanding of human nature i mean there's always two things going on at once right there's the there are the elements of culture that are eternal yeah. that are that that persist down through the ages and then there are the parts of culture that are creatures and artifacts of a particular time and place and i think a lot of careful thinking can be done on which is which hmm. um and uh, I mean, I like to think of that, of a metaphor of flowers and seeds. There's a passage from Isaiah in the Old Testament that says, um, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And as a, as a commentary on culture, I think that verse is really, is really instructive. There are certain works of man, cultural works of man that qualify as grass and flowers, and they will fade with time because all the works of man are subject to decay. But there are certain things about culture that qualify as the word of our God that stands forever. What are the things about the Western tradition that come to us directly from God that qualify as that eternal word of God? And I, you know, I wouldn't want to um, hazard any guesses in a short space, but that's a question I think that would that would really yield some good things if we if we thought about it hard enough. Hmm. One of the things I think that stood out to me there when you were just talking is the idea that maybe, maybe it's not so much about that, that when we idolize it, we say that that time was, you know, we should go back there because it was an inherently better time and we'd all be happier and there'd be less, right. there'd be less death and chaos. I mean, we know this right. to be false, right? Um, people have always died, <laughs> always will. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. And it's often it's going to be not in a great way. Right. And that's just the way of, you know, since the Garden of Eden, right? That's why we're always looking back. Uh, but right. at the same time, that doesn't mean that there weren't people living in those times that had great wisdom and that could interpret what was going on around them in a way that could be valuable to us and help our children to become more wise. And that, Absolutely. The, that the centuries that have added on to that experience give voice to that, to that tradition, that, that cumulative wisdom that can be useful to us as we educate. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, and that's why that's why the Odyssey and the Iliad and the Aeneid and the Divine Comedy and Paradise Lost are are still treasured in our hearts today because those those members of particular times and places managed to say something uh, that transcended their time and place. They managed to say yeah. something universal about the human condition, and in their observations, we find wisdom. 
And I think one of the highest callings of a teacher is to help students sift through the elements of a tradition and yeah. grasp onto what is universal while keeping a, um, a rational, level-headed view of the fact that cultures rise and fall by the will of God, as it were. Yeah. Yeah, I was talking to someone, I was actually interviewing someone yesterday, and one of the topics of conversation that came up with her was the idea that this idea of idolizing, you know, one particular thread or strand or tradition in classical education mm -hmm. and how we can act like it has um, all the answers or one mm -hmm. method has all the answers and we end up idolizing it instead of saying, admitting, you know, we've barely scratched the surface. Yeah. There's a lot of wisdom out there and it's going to take a long time and a lot of study and a lot of people to, to be able to understand what this tradition has been saying, let alone add our own voice to that tradition. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, that's really, um, I love that idea that, uh, that we talk about over at center for lit, we talk about the great conversation all the time yeah, and, yeah. and what prepare students to, to participate in the great conversation, to add their voice to this conversation that, you know, began with Homer and before and coming, comes all the way down to Fitzgerald and the modern day. But sometimes, um, we forget. And when we're encouraging kids to speak in the great conversation, we forget that there's so much listening that is necessary first. This sifting that we're talking about, this going deep into to Homer and Shakespeare and Dante and Milton and figuring out what it was that they were trying to say, deciding whether it's eternal or whether it is bound to a time and place. That takes a lot of paying attention, it takes a lot of not speaking before you can actually know the landscape well enough to jump in on your own. Hmm. So I think there's something uh, necessary in correctly looking at the past. There's something necessary about learning to be a good listener and a good reader that we, um, that we should emphasize. Hmm. Have you learned any, I'm going to shift gears a little bit here. Um, slightly maybe. Have, <laughs> have you, is there anything about, recent readings of the great Gatsby in particular that stood out to you or surprised you? Cause I imagine you've read it several times now. Um, how many times have you read it? Oh man, I don't know. Half a dozen maybe. So in, in your more recent readings, is there anything that stood out to you that, that surprised you for its profundity or it's, um, or just something that made you excited about it or maybe even the opposite where you thought, I kind of wish he hadn't done that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, I'll answer the first question. I haven't really seen Gatsby himself as an epic hero until recent readings, but um, I, I yeah, think that he really is. Huh. Yeah, I think he's he's a hero. He's a perfect hero for his day and age. He's an early 20th century epic hero, and he is going after his goal with all of the vigor and all of the single-mindedness of purpose that, that Aeneas does. Uh, hmm. but it's a different goal and he is, is um, it a goal that is unique to its time? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think Gatsby's personal situation is he's trying to, to win the love of a woman, an unreachable woman. And in so this that's case, not there's some new. similarities. No, that's <laughs> not new. Is it? That's there's the oldest problem. <laughs> To Dante and all kinds of other people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's it's also a fantasy that he's that he's going after. He's going after a vision of his world hmm. that is just beyond his reach. And you know, there's some echoes. There's some echoes of the great epics 
in that in that um, that quest. It's the green light that's just off the edge of the dock that he can't quite reach, and he's, he stretches out his hands toward it. But the, the thing that struck me recently is how single-minded he is, how pure, if I can use a non-20th century idea, how pure <laughs> he is in his pursuit of this vision. Hmm. In fact, he's the only character in the story that escapes censure by the author, by the narrator. Nick Carraway has has unadulterated scorn, I think is Fitzgerald's term, for all that he has seen in New York during this three summers or whatever it is. Yeah. But he doesn't have any scorn for Gatsby. Gatsby alone is is better than his neighbors. And it's almost as though Fitzgerald is saying, here's an epic hero for our day and age. Hmm. And you can look at it and say, well, it's depressing because he's fated to fail. And to which I would respond, aren't they all? Hmm. Aren't they all? Achilles is fated to fail. Aeneas, maybe not. But there is fated fail. There's man against fate shot through all the great stories of the world. Um, I just I think of King Lear in this connection, yeah. uh, whose whose victory comes Hamlet. in the midst of his destruction. Hamlet, yeah, the Shakespearean heroes are very common. It's a common theme among them as well. So anyway, the connection between between Gatsby and all the great epic heroes of literature has been really striking to me in recent readings. That's interesting to yeah. In it's it does read it does feel like a Shakespearean tragedy in many ways. Yeah, I think it does. I think it does. And we get we get distracted by the fact that it's a it's a novel of debauchery. Um, and it may be because shake the the Elizabethan style debauchery sits a little easier on the ear or something. <laughs> or maybe it's that Gatsby was written so close to our own age that that kind of debauchery is very familiar and it's easy to proscribe it or to condemn it. But uh, I think underneath the the real truth is that it's a it's a human epic, just like Hamlet and Lear and the Aeneid. Hmm. So let's talk a little bit of. Um, you have, you have some more time? Sure. A couple more minutes. Let's talk a little bit about it's, you know, the idea of its place in the canon. Um, because you talk about how in the article, you talk about how, you know, the divine comedy didn't acquire literary greatness, um, right away. Like for a long mm -hmm. time, it wasn't read. And then it was the 1800s when it was retranslated again. And, and now we think of it as a as a classic or, you know, as one of the essential parts of the, the Western canon. Um, but people will look at modern literature um, and, and I, I suppose rightly so question its place within the canon. We can't know that yet living now. So, right. you know, how much should we value it within our, within our studies and in particular with, within our student studies and what we're giving them. So uh, good question. So what do you? Th how, I mean, you you respond to that a little bit in the article, but could you go into that a little bit and talk about how you, how you think about making a choice like that? Um, we talked about you already said what that you would have them read it and when and a little bit about that. But how should you think about it in relation to this larger context of of great works of literature? That's a that's a really good question because we're doing two different kinds of reading and teaching. If we answer this question straight ahead, we're doing a, a kind of reading and teaching where we are we are partaking of um, the established tradition that time has had a chance to uncover and has basically delivered a verdict. These are the books that are going to remain. These are going to endure. And generations have have agreed 
We are also, though, at the same time doing something different, which is participating in the culture of our own day and age. And we cannot know what in our the culture of our own day and age is going to stand the test of time, except by educated guessing, by its similarity in respect to universal themes to the stuff that has gone before. So in a sense, we're, mm. we're, we're shooting around in the dark. And so it's a different project. But mm. as, I, as I tried to suggest in the article, um, there, there may be a writer out there today preparing to do for his own day and age what Cicero did for his or Homer did for his or Shakespeare did for his. And there's a sense in which it's a wonderful uh, treasure hunt. It's a quest to find out who that writer is. Shakespeare wrote, and and I'm assuming that Homer composed and 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 Milton wrote in a sea of lesser talents. And he was not the only guy writing Elizabethan poetry. He's just the one that remains hundreds of years later. We live in a sea because time hasn't sifted out the lesser works yet. We live right in the midst of the sea of 20th, 21st century art and literature. And in a sense, it's overwhelming because there's so many things to choose from. But in another sense, it's kind of exciting. Who is going to be the writer that actually stands the test of time and is still read 200 years from now? In one sense, it doesn't matter at all because we will all be dead, us and our students alike. On the other hand, we get to participate in finding that guy. And so mm -hmm. I think I think I would suggest that we go about our, our, our teaching and assigning and even our reading with two minds. On the one hand, let's absorb and learn from the wisdom of past ages. And on the other hand, let's turn and then participate in being the wisdom of past ages for those who will come after us. And I think those are two different projects, which ought to make us a little open-minded about the art and literature of our own day and age, because we just don't know yet. And so that should make us excited to go and discover. Do you have a personal or a particular rule for your own reading like for every what was it lewis said for every new book he reads he reads two old ones or something like that do you have any rule that's hard and fast like that for you that you try to at least try to pursue or do you just kind of follow your bliss as it were yeah <laughs> i've never used the phrase follow my bliss but i think that might be applicable <laughs> in this situation um yeah i found that the tr trying to implement a rule like that is usually destructive of the end for me yeah. Uh, it makes the whole thing seem like a uh, a regimen, and I don't do very well with regimens when it comes to comes to art. But I'm I'm I find myself naturally drawn back every once in a while to some of the older stuff. I don't know if we would consider Dickens an, an old one in uh, in this connection, but I kind of do, and I can't go too long without a Dickens novel. Which is your favorite? So, uh, Little Dorrit is my favorite. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I did not. I didn't. I mean, I didn't have an expectation, really, but that wasn't the one I expected to hear when I said oh, the question. <laughs> so wonderful. I like them all. Um, I'm, a, I'm kind of an addict, but I think Little Dorrit is is the um, the purest, most compelling presentation of. Uh, well, I, I would call it the gospel of grace that I've ever read. And I, hmm. I, I could not recommend it highly enough. Hmm. But anyway, I, I'm also reading the you know, the, the newest Pulp Fiction novel by J.K. Rowling, too. So, but, <laughs> but you, you go back and forth between those two. And, and I think following your bliss, uh, once you've learned to appreciate and understand great literature, I think following your bliss is probably as good a rule as any. Do you find that you have to force yourself to read, say, Shakespeare or the epic poems? For the, for, uh, or, or do you, or do you, are you like my dad where you could literally just do that all day forever? 
Well, <laughs> I don't know about that, but I will tell you this. I had never read Crime and Punishment. Um, I think it was assigned to me in college. And I, um, I think I cliff notes it instead of actually doing the reading because I was too busy that week or something. So a few months <laughs> ago, I went and I and I picked it up and um, read it at a in a single sitting or two with my heart in my throat. And I just I must have picked it up at just the right time, you know, in my own life or something like that. But it was it took no work at all. It was as captivating as any detective thriller could ever be. Um, by the same token. I set myself out to read the Aeneid recently, which is as as readable as an epic can be, and found it very, very ponderous. And um, I only read the Iliad when I'm forced because I think it just goes on and on and on. So it would t- <laughs> take me a lot of, of discipline to get through a couple of those old epics. So, you know, the truth is we're probably all the same when it comes to that. We've got things we like and things we don't. Yeah. And then things you feel like you should read, so you do. Yeah, exactly. You should read the Aeneid. Everyone should. And you should yeah. read it again. And so you do. But yeah, yeah. But, my well, son Calvin thinks the Aeneid is the greatest thing ever written. It's his favorite book. So hmm. there's no accounting for taste. <laughs> that is for sure. Uh, so what about uh, Shakespeare? Do you find Shakespeare an, an easy something to jump into or do you have to make yourself? I, although that's a pretty broad question because the man wrote like 727 plays. Right. So. <laughs> Well, I think with Shakespeare, the um, it, it takes it, it takes half an hour or so to remember the the rhythms and cadence of the language yeah. and the strange constructions of Elizabethan English. But once that is once that little temporary hurdle is passed, then I think Shakespeare is a glorious joy. Hmm. Let's. T- can you give any recommendations for um, one or two contemporary novel novelists or writers that you think that that we should all be reading that maybe maybe are doing some of the same things and speaking in the same tradition that, that you would argue Gatsby is? Oh boy. Um, one that comes immediately to mind is Marilyn Robinson. And, uh, who is saying, I think a lot of the same things that Fitzgerald said and doing it in that same ancient tradition by, um, uh, by creating protagonists that are creatures of their time and place, American, uh, protagonists who, uh, come from a American Christian tradition that in all of its ambiguity weighs on them and provides at the same time hope and also confinement and discouragement and the kinds of things that American Christianity is is made of are the warp and woof of her characters in their situations. Hmm. And she issues a a Ciceronian lament as Ciceronian as any can be the O tempora O mores thing that comes from a, it comes from such a, um, a direction that I personally identify with and her, her elegiac language and her um, ability to, to step back and talk about the universal themes in the context of a, of a, a very human situation, though mm-hmm. the, um, the debauchery and the stuff that that pushes us away from Gatsby is not as as marked in Marilyn Robinson's work. I think she's trying for exactly the same thing that Fitzgerald did, and I would recommend her work very highly. Hmm. You might know we just uh, just finished doing um, Gilead on the Close Reads podcast that we do. Oh wow! So, what a great book! Yeah, that what was a great a, book. That was a fun one. There's there, oh, yeah. that, there's so much in there that you just kind of like feel like you barely scratch the surface, which is of course the beautiful thing about any good book, right? You could could spend six hours talking about the whole book and you've still not touched on everything you could touch. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say the great thing about, about Robinson and Gilead is that she is so comfortable 
with the the language of man as a creature of God, as a self-conscious creature of God. Hmm. And so she doesn't, uh, she goes ahead and says it. Um, you know, we live in a Christian that's a, a culture that's been suffused with Christianity since the beginning. We're preachers' kids, or we know preachers' kids, or we know preachers, and the the language of formal institutional Christianity kind of suffuses everything everything that she writes and she manages to because both, that's kind both of in its idiom. good ways and its bad ways exactly right yeah. exactly right and, and, and it, it, it's it's trouble as well as it's hope and yeah. because that's her idiom then she can talk without sounding it doesn't sound forced at all she can talk about the eternal question of man's relationship to god hmm. and so in a sense jump back a century or two yeah. to a time when um, that relationship was taken for granted. How you understood it was a matter of personal conviction. But the fact that that relationship existed was unquestioned. Hmm. And it's refreshing to read Robinson and and to step into a world where that the fact of that relationship is taken for granted once again. Hmm. Um, I think there's something really healthy about that. Hmm. I think the atheism of, of the last two centuries has been uh, an unfortunate aberration in, in Western culture and a, a work like Robinson's, which isn't trying to preach. It's not trying to convert anybody. It's just saying, let's talk about the human condition with this assumption in the background is really exciting to me. One of the things we talked about early on in those, the episodes on Gilead on the other show is, is the idea that, you know, this is a book that won the Pulitzer prize, but as you said, it does assume within its idiom that God is, that God exists. And yet it yeah. became such a critical favorite and it won the biggest literary prize in the world. And I, I just find that so fascinating that people, yeah. people were not, you know, she was, she is a talented enough writer to not, to not exclude other people from the conversation and the questions that her book is posing. Yeah. Um, despite the assumptions that are within that, you know, she's operating in. I think that, yeah. you know, that's a, that's a gift. Not ever anybody can do that. There's gotta be a generosity in her voice. Um, you know, the, like her literary voice to enable that to happen. Yeah. I think that's very true. There's definitely a generosity. I like the way you put it in her, in her voice, but it also speaks to the fact that she may be right about that assumption hmm. that, that, um, the atheism of our culture since 1859, um, is, is that was fair. very specific of you. Uh, publication of Darwin's uh, Darwin's book. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, yeah. Okay. Um, the 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 progressive atheist uh, atheism of our culture. It's fair to see that as an aberration, and hmm. um, historically speaking, hmm. and you know, not to take sides in a in a theological debate, but she assumes that she goes ahead and says, in effect, look, we are we are creatures of a God that we don't know very well, and that results in a mixture of hope and sorrow and it results in this kind of human condition. And uh, hmm. the fact that she won the Pulitzer Prize for it makes me think that all of Western culture said, you're right. <laughs> yeah. You're right. We may not, uh, you're right. Sub here, it's subconsciously, it's subconsciously groaned in agreement. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Groaned in agreement. <laughs> well, okay. One final question before I let you go, you know, live your life. Um, on your mountain in Washington state. Um, <laughs> Uh, the, the Gatsby movies, have you seen them? I have seen two. I saw the Robert Redford one. Uh, I can't remember the year, late seventies, early eighties. And then I saw the recent Boz Lerman one with, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. Okay. So thoughts on those quickly. Would you recommend them to people who love this book? Um, like 
I'll I just would, put I it would that recommend, way. yep, I would recommend always watching the movie versions of great literature. It is more fun than you can possibly have as a, as a reader is to read a work of great literature and then see what the Hollywood directors do with it. It's so much fun. And in particular, I don't really remember the Robert Redford one all that much, except the shirt scene. It was awesome because <laughs> they did collars and cuffs back in the seventies. Yeah. But, um, but I saw an interview with Boz Luhrmann about his over the top outlandish, uh, Gatsby movie of a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And, I was so impressed by the care that he expressed with, uh, for the story. Um, there were a couple of scenes that he left out of the story that I thought, oh, there it is, Hollywood, just, you know, fitting the story into their own mold to make a movie out of it. And what a, what a stereotypical Hollywood director. And during this interview, he actually said to all the scenes that I was concerned about, he said, we actually filmed that scene. And while he was talking, the interview cut away to show the actual scene that I that he had left out. It was it had been completely produced and filmed. And he said, mm-hmm. and for this reason, we had to leave it out. And this is why we fretted over that. And this is the story we told, uh, the way we told the story instead. And I was completely convinced by his decisions. And, and mm-hmm. it was it was really interesting to underscore the idea that, that obviously a movie is a different art form than a work of literature. It's a different way to tell a story and you can't tell it exactly the same way. But um, it was really encouraging for me to see that at least in this particular case, the director was trying to do right by the story and tell it in his own idiom in the way that would, that was faithful to Fitzgerald's work. So mm-hmm. anyway, I would recommend it. Um, it's his particular directorial style is, is, is outlandish and over the top. And so kind of appropriate for, yeah. um, for Gatsby's story. In a, in a way, it's its own. It's it's it's, it's a modern. The, the the way that he tells the story in in its, in a modern idiom is consistent with the rea- the truths that the Gats- great Gatsby is trying to reveal. I but, think so too. Yeah, you know, I agree. Th- there's a combination of form and content that speaks not only to the 1920s but to the time we live in now. Yeah, and in that way, it's he's saying just what Fitzgerald was saying. I mean, Fitzgerald was talking about the 1920s, but he's also talking about um, a world without Eckelberg. And uh, mm, yeah. I think Lerman's movie does the same thing. Hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with me this morning. Um, quickly, what? Uh, where can people find out more about you? They should definitely be listening and subscribing to your Bibliophiles podcast. So uh, I encourage all our listeners to go subscribe to that on iTunes or you know Stitcher or wherever you get podcasts. I assume it's available. But what else, where else can they learn more about you and Center for Lit? Yeah, the website is centerforlit.com. And we've got resources for readers, teachers, homeschoolers, curriculum developers. We've also got a membership program called the Pelican Society, which uh, provides exclusive content for people interested in the the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. And you can find out uh, more about that on pelicansociety.com. I appreciate you um, having me on, David. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. 
United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.